UCB Life Issues with Paul Hammond. And as always, a very warm welcome to this week's Life Issues. Now, you've heard about cancel culture, of course you have. A novelist takes a position around female identity and trans rights, and suddenly she finds herself excluded from an anniversary programme about her most famous work. How can that happen? Or a programme is made in the 70s and contains material that, let's be honest, we know it's more than a bit dodgy and it's actually quite offensive now now, but suddenly it's pulled from our TV screens. Who is it gets to decide what can and can't be seen within the context of its original setting? Truth is, people have always been offended by free speech. Even the message of the gospel can be seen as offensive and make people, as Paul said, trip over it and see it as madness. But in this modern age, with the power of social media and woke sensitivities, is it right that people find themselves sidelined so easily? Is cancel culture a two-edged sword, a brilliant expression of people power to protect society from that which should be taken out when we are offended? But also a dangerous thing if it is us they are offended by. Do we have a campaign to remove things Could it not be that we undermine the impact of offensive things by simply not buying a ticket? And is it very often when people take offence about context? Frankie Boyle said, A joke told to an audience at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night in Newcastle, lifted out of context, put in a newspaper to be read by a stockbroker in Surrey over a breakfast the next morning, is not going to play the same. Context, very often, he said, means that you had to be there. And is part of the problem with cancel culture that so often those who are being offended weren't there. But isn't that exactly what we've done in the church over the years as well? And actually, isn't it very often what people have done for decades around the church? Whether we think it's a good thing or not, cancel culture seems to have an increasing influence. So what is it? What are the dangers? And should people of faith be concerned about its growth? Joining me today to talk about this is Lois McClatchy. She's from ADF UK. ADF.UK is their website. She's written and reflected much on this lately, not least because of a case that ADF have taken up. So Lois, let's start there. Well, let me tell you about Pavey then. Um, So this is a case that came to us all the way from Finland. And maybe listeners in the UK will be thinking, why are we worried about a case in Finland? Well, let's start from the start. Pavey uh, is a grandmother. Uh, She's a qualified doctor and she's a parliamentarian. She's been a parliamentarian for as long as I've been alive. Um, So that's more than 25 years. I won't tell you how much more. And she um, is a Christian. She's a committed Christian. And she um, was a member of a church uh, in Finland uh, in 2019. That church that she was a member of decided to sponsor the gay pride parade in Helsinki. And, and Pavey disagreed with this stance. She thought um, that the Bible said that they, they should not be um, engaging in this sort of activity as a church. She tweeted this opinion. She asked her church, where in the Bible did you find justification to sponsor the pride parade? And to that tweet, she attached a Bible verse from Romans. 
Now, as anyone with a Twitter account will know, whenever you post something about that kind of thing on Twitter, you get a bit of back and forth. Some people mm -hmm. will agree, some people will disagree. There'll be a bit of public debate. Baby's been a politician for over 25 years. She's not afraid of a little bit of um, debate amongst uh, citizens. She's fine with that. Nobody complained to the government that she had said anything illegal. She hadn't. She'd just been expressing a view. But the state government, the state prosecutor picks up on this tweet and she decides that this is offensive to the extent that it's hate speech. And not only hate speech, but under Finnish law, it's prosecuted as ethnic agitation, which is actually under their war crimes um, section of the law. So Pavey, who has just posted a tweet, is now being investigated as a war criminal for voicing essentially what is a biblical view. Uh, the prosecutor looks into her case a little more and she uncovers a booklet that Pavey wrote in 2004 for her church about sexuality. It's based on the verse, male and female, he created them. You can tell a little bit about where that story might be going, uh, considering some of the, the examples you raised in the introduction about cancel culture. The prosecutor finds this to be offensive as well, and she's... Uh, gives another count of hate speech against Pavey. And finally, she takes an interview that Pavey did in 2019 on radio, an hour-long show that has a bit of back and forth, a bit of comedy, a bit of uh, cultural interest. And she takes a very short snippet uh, from that interview out of context, as you've just been describing. And she says that this is hateful too. So all of a sudden, grandmother of seven, Pavey Raisman, is facing three counts under which, all of which have a maximum penalty charge of two years in prison, essentially for going for stating her biblical beliefs. On top of that, her bishop, who published the pamphlet in 2004, is also facing the same charge, which carries a maximum two-year penalty in prison. So Pavey and the bishop have been on trial for the last few months. We'll hear at the verdict very shortly. Uh, and this is kind of the ultimate, I think, um, ultimate moment of cancel culture in Europe. It's the first time we've seen someone potentially go to prison simply for stating a view from the Bible, especially on Twitter. Um, but, but this has been kind of mounting uh, over uh, various uh, instances, I think, across the continent. It starts off frequently on, on Twitter. It is, I think, genuinely the source of a lot of these things. That's how J.K. Rowling posted her first most infamous tweet uh, about what a woman might be and if women are being raised. Uh, and that grew and grew and people thought that she was guilty of all sorts of things and that she, she should be raised. We've then seen it taken to our culture. Uh, where people are facing job losses for stating their views about what women are. For example, with Maya Forstater in the UK losing her job recently. But this is the moment where we see that pass from something that's cultural, something that affects daily life, into something that be could become a criminal yeah, sentence yeah. Uh, for stating your view. And it illustrates very clearly, because I think for many of us, we'll have assumed cancel culture is about sort of social media pushing people to the side and they may lose a bit of work and so on. And they might find themselves excluded from a TV program or they might find themselves losing some gigs and so on. But it obviously has ramifications that go much beyond a comedian's offensive routine. So... As you've been thinking about this and looking at it, how would you define cancel culture as it's growing, not just in the UK, but around the world? Yeah, it's a really important question. And I believe that cancel culture is a social attitude which seeks to erase people 
from whom we disagree. Um, that's quite a strong sentence to erase somebody. What does that mean? Well, it means that you, it isn't about just simply not supporting someone. As you suggested, if you find a comedian offensive, you don't need to buy a ticket to go and see them. And mm. that's you kind of voting with your feet, uh, with your money. I don't, I don't enjoy this comedy. I want to see something else. And then over time, that will essentially, you know, if society decides they don't like a particular comedian, he's not going to make much money. He's going to be looking for a job elsewhere. That's a natural form of ideas in the public market. But cancel culture seeks not to just erase a thought or a style of, of the way of saying something. It actually seeks to erase the person. Uh, if you remember, when we go back to that very typical example of J.K. Rowling, a lot of people started to burn her books after she had said, made her comments about what a woman is, because they kind of wanted to erase her from history. They didn't want people to be able to read Harry Potter anymore, uh, because that was something to do with her. Uh, the New York Times just a few months ago advertised that they wanted to invite readers to imagine a world where Harry Potter existed without having been created by J.K. Rowling. So council culture is trying to uh, pretend, if, you, if you've, anyone's ever read uh, George Orwell's 1984, if you will, to memory hole somebody so that no one remembers what they did and they're completely taken out of the public conversation. And in doing that, I suppose... Well, can we not distinguish between a person's personal views and the work that they produce if it doesn't necessarily reflect those personal views? Because there doesn't, as far as I'm aware, and I'm not a great student of Harry Potter, but there doesn't seem to be in Harry Potter a, a, a representation of what she is stating there. In fact, in some ways, you would say it was quite the, the opposite. Why is it necessary to say a person's work is now completely disregarded because we don't like their personal opinion, don't agree with their position, think that what they've said is offensive? Yeah, it's, it's quite a funny one. Possibly for some people who relate to this at home, if they, like me, grew up in a Christian family, I was never allowed to read Harry Potter growing up because my parents thought it would be about witchcraft looking at the cover. And now I find myself often defending J.K. Rowling in the media. So it is funny how these things come quite full circle. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, Harry Potter really has nothing to do with the ideas of J.K. Rowling about what a woman is. But the idea is that anything that this person deemed in our culture now to be, if you will, a sinner, being to be someone who is um, cut off, is um, not like us, is different, cannot be, we cannot enjoy anything that they've taken part in. We cannot enjoy anything that they've made and they're just simply um, taken out of the entire public eye. Some might suggest, and I mean, we don't want to dwell perpetually on Harry Potter, but I remember when the <laughs> Harry Potter film, the first one came out, and an awful lot of Christian families were adopting the same sort of conviction that your family were adopting in the same way. We don't want our children to see the film. We don't want them to read the books. We, we, it, it's wrong. And in a sense, trying to cancel the influence of Harry Potter within a generation. I mean, there are those who would suggest that the church has been doing this for centuries and cancelling out ideas that it doesn't like. How should we, how, how does this tie in with a Christian perspective? Is there any validity to the the desire that we all have sometimes to say, oh, I really wish that that particular viewpoint <laughs> that particular perspective didn't exist i wish that person just wasn't there so we could didn't have to hear them 
<laughs> well, like I'm more, all in favor of parents being able to decide what content their children see. That's not what this is about at all. <laughs> but you're at, you've hit on something really true here in that the church has had a kind of difficult relationship with cancel culture for many years. People view this as a modern phenomenon, but it's not. Cancel culture has been around since the times of Jesus. And we had uh, until last year in Scotland, where I'm from, we had a, a blasphemy law. So that meant that when the church was in, uh, had a, a greater position of power in Scotland, we had uh, put in a law where people could not disagree with church, could not disagree with Christianity. Uh, and that meant that people were arrested and put on trial and even killed sometimes for, for their dissent against uh, church beliefs. Now, the interesting thing that happened is when, like that law had not been you know, actually enforced for hundreds of years, generations and generations. We've come a long, long way uh, since then. And... Um, but last year, when the blasphemy law was finally taken out of Scottish legislation, a very interesting happened on the very same day. They put in a different law um, called a hate speech law, um, and that actually restricted speech again. So there was never a moment in Scotland where we didn't have a speech restriction. It went from being a blasphemy one that stopped people from disagreeing with church to something being a hate speech law. And the way that it, the hate speech is defined is so vague that it actually could put a lot of Christians uh, in trouble if they were to voice some of the beliefs of the Bible, including things uh, about, you know, the church not supporting um, same-sex marriage or uh, male and female, he created them. These ideas which are very, very sensitive, uh, but are core to Christian beliefs and important uh, about the truth of the gospel. Um, it could, this, this law could really restrict Christians from sharing their beliefs about that. And what about the philosophy itself? The idea of cancelling something out, cancelling somebody out. I mean, how does that tie in with a Christian perspective? How does that tie in? Does cancel culture fit with the gospel, Lois? <laughs> That's a great question. And no, it doesn't. <laughs> in short, uh, I believe that it does not. And I think Jesus really challenged cancel culture per day. I think uh, of his day, the cancel culture is a very pre-Christian idea. It's an idea that if somebody is deemed to have sinned, if someone has deemed to be um, gone against uh, whatever society deems right, that they should be banished forever and never forgiven uh, and sent out. Um, Jesus really challenged this firstly through his interaction with uh, people throughout the Gospels, you know, his relationship uh, in uh, extending friendship to the woman at the well who had mm -hmm. been outcast from society, from speaking to Zacchaeus, uh, tax collectors, um, sitting with people who had jobs that were despised or the poor or people um, that were seen as dirty or lepers. Um, he really challenged that and showed that there is um, grace extended through all in a way that, that had never been part of society uh, before. And ultimately, of course, uh, the moment of the cross, um, he took all the um, guilt and shame of the world that the cancer culture would say makes people untouchable. And he took it upon himself uh, so that all could be a part of the kingdom of God. So cancel culture really flies in the face of that. And perhaps it's as society rejects uh, the gospel more and more, rejects the idea of grace, um, that we do find ourselves back in a place where we don't want to talk to people who have been outcasts or who have uh, deemed to go against the grain. Uh, but society as a whole, not just Christians, really lose out a lot from this philosophy. 
Um, it's always been people throughout history that have kind of um, radical or different ideas that really push things forward. For example, if you think about uh, slavery, William Wilberforce was deemed a fool at the start of his career for opposing slavery. And in the course of his political career, he managed to end uh, the slave trade uh, in, in terms of uh, Britain uh, so that um, our society changed forever and we understood human rights better for it. But this was became an, an idea that at first was rejected. Yeah. So if cancel culture at that time had been as strong as it is now and he'd just been shunned from society, who knows where that would have been? Same with things like um, women being let into university. That was the Edinburgh Seven, who were seven campaigners uh, who worked against uh, what was a dominant societal view at the time. And they um, fought for women to be included at university. And now we have more women at the university than men. Uh, so it's really always people who um, seem to be challenging or seem to be outsiders who really push us forward. So society as a whole does suffer from And it does seem like a, a slippery slope on this because today I may want to cancel somebody because their opinion is at odds with the societal norms. But tomorrow I may want to cancel you because you don't agree with me and the majority of society. And the day after, I might want to cancel you simply because you don't agree with me. I mean, it does feed into this recent, or it feels like recent development, where rather than debating different opinions, we simply shout at and reject people who have got a different opinion to us. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a philosophy of free speech for me, but not for thee if I disagree with you. Um, which is is very uh, it is detrimental and it, it lacks the enrichment of a democracy where you can learn to sit around a table and hear somebody else's perspective and sharpen your own viewpoint. Or maybe you find that you might have made a mistake yourself and you might want to change your mind. But we've lost that ability to change our mind. Um, one place that this is becoming particularly empowering is in some of our most elite universities. Britain has some of the best universities in the whole world. Um, but more and more we're seeing uh, at Oxford, at Cambridge, uh, different uh, places where debates are being cancelled or stifled out. Only a couple of months ago or even a month ago, I saw that at Oxford, uh, there had been uh, a debate on abortion had been cancelled because people were scared that it would be too offensive. If our leaders of tomorrow, and let's be honest, a lot of them will come from Oxford, mm -hmm. if they're not able to talk about abortion when they're 18, they're not going to be able to talk about abortion when they're 35. And this is something that affects one in three women in the UK. It's important that we are grappling with these difficult topics. Um, but by making sure that nobody's even allowed to speak about them, how are we ever going to progress? So these students are, are what, feeling the need to self-censor? Even, I mean, we all need to self-censor sometimes, let's be honest. Inside voice, outside voice, absolutely. <laughs> but, but actually, I would like to participate in this debate, but because of the impact it will bring on me, I won't, I'll withdraw, I'll keep quiet, I won't put my head above the parapet. Yeah, there's two things happening at two levels. One's an institutional one. And a lot of these institutions, you know, the student union are cancelling these debates. Um, and that means that like, they're just afraid of their students being able to engage in if, even if they want to. And we saw at that uh, abortion debate I referenced in Oxford last month, actually a lot of the students who had wanted to go to the debate went to the pub instead and talked about it there. They had a group of about 25 who just wanted to have the discussion, even if they couldn't have it on a, on a formal university basis. Mm. So we see there is a, a, a willingness and a, a wish to understand these complex issues more, but universities are afraid to do that. But on another level, there is also the 
creeping chill, all of these things is that people are scared to talk about something in case they get into trouble from their universities. We had a client with ADF UK um, last year who uh, was a student at Nottingham University. She was a midwifery student. She's a midwifery student because she loved mums, she loved babies. And she was uh, identified herself as pro-life and part of a pro-life club. Um, she was advertising the club at the Freshers Fair at the start of term and what they believed. Um, and a, one of the university staff uh, saw her doing so and reported her uh, to her course. She was suspended um, for a few months um, for having done so and having had these views. Um, and she ultimately was um, delayed graduation because of it. Uh, we were able to um, support uh, Julia Nottingham and, and help her to and get an apology from the university and a settlement. But, um, but how, these stories, yeah. But how, how is that possible? I mean, how can someone be who, who is not promoting any sort of criminal or extreme um, behaviour, is not condemning or criticising people, is, not, is, not, is simply expressing a personal conviction how can they then be suspended from their course i mean surely we have free speech rights it's a human right isn't it in law to be able to say what you feel as long as you're not inciting hatred it is absolutely it's a human right that's protected um in international law um and it's you know protected, has been protected at the European Court of Human Rights, which is the highest uh, European institution, and we're still fall into that court, um, even post-Brexit. So it's absolutely a human right, um, and that's why Julia was successful in the end of the day for for um, being able to get that apology from the university who had trampled over her her right to free speech, a, a university of all places. Mm. People who are hearing this story, students are obviously seeing what's happened to Julia and are scared to speak out themselves. Like 25% of students are self-censoring um, because they're afraid of being judged. And they don't necessarily know that they have that right to free speech or they're scared that even if they use that right, they'll still get into trouble. Um, it is protected in international law, but the other thing is that recently um, there's also been some legislation come in which is causing questions to be raised about how much you can use that human right uh, in the UK. You're listening to Life Issues. I'm Paul Hammond. Life Issues, of course, a podcast from UCB. Speaking this week to Lois McClatchy. Lois is from the legal charity ADF UK. ADF.UK is their website. And uh, we're talking about cancel culture. And so free speech is a human right. It's a right that is protected by law, but possibly not in this country. Yeah, it's absolutely protected. And it is a human right to be able to speak out. But unfortunately, some legislation that's been passing through our parliament recently has uh, made the interpretation of this right very difficult. Um, one element of that is something that has been very, right this month is being passed between the two chambers um, of Westminster, um, which deals with um, protest. It's called the Policing Bill, Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill. Um, and whilst... Um, freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and freedom of protest is protected in human rights law. This law seeks to um, make sure that protest doesn't go too far. The government have used it to, to say that um, they want to limit groups like Extinction Rebellion and that kind of thing, uh, which is obviously we need to make sure that there's a balance there uh, when people are protesting that everyone is kept safe. But the concerning thing is 
that this legislation goes so far that even if one person was out on the street expressing their beliefs that somebody might find offensive or make them feel quote unquote uneasy, um, they could be treated as a protester that's going too far and um, criminalized for sharing their faith. And this is something that's a little bit concerning for Christians, uh, because, uh, as you know, there's quite often people who like to share their faith uh, in public uh, on a street. They might like to hand out tracts. Um, they might like to invite people to an event at their church. Um, they might like to preach from the Bible um, in the street. Uh, these are all things that uh, various churches support. Um, unfortunately, if that, that means that with this legislation, if a street preacher or a street evangelist was found to be offensive, um, they could be treated as uh, a protester and uh, face consequences for that. And that is because of this phrase that is in the legislation and that it might risk somebody feeling serious unease. To be honest with you, I feel serious unease because of the legislation, but uh, that probably won't <laughs> count for much. And and so why is it... Why are these concepts of cancel culture gaining so much traction and acceptance then in a society which loudly proclaims its liberal belief in free speech and freedom to do that which you want to do as long as it does nobody else any harm? Yeah, it's again, it's free speech for me, but not for the And We do have a new set of kind of ideals and uh, very liberal ideology uh, in our society at the moment, which is kind of forming, if you like, a new type of religion where people have this moral set and they don't um, want to hear anything else. They don't want to hear any challenges to that. And anyone who opposes that is kind of in their eyes, a kind of sinner that needs to be banished. Uh, from society. So um, the values of Christianity, in some cases, as you said at the, at the very start, they cause stumbling. They are some, seen to some in the world as foolish. We're told that that will happen. Uh, but particularly against this kind of newer uh, form of religion, and some people would call it the Church of Woke or whatever, but I think it's uh, fine to just call it a new set of values, a new set of ideology. Um, if, if Christianity conflicts with that, people with those views are kind of outcasts, uh, which is very much against the grain of what we're taught is uh, good for society and the gospel. There are implications for this, though, outside of the church as well, aren't there? Because you, we have got, I mean, the, we've now reached the situation where some comedians, I, I noticed recently Ricky Gervais, and again, a comedian whose comedy doesn't really appeal to me on many levels, is actually selling his next tour on the basis that it will be the most offensive tour that he's ever done. And it is a specific anti-cancel culture tour. Now, for him, brilliant bit of marketing, but actually... The, the truth is, this isn't just about faith. This is also about entertainment. It's also about challenging uh, opinions, which comedy often does. It is about art. It's about creativity. There are a whole raft of things here, which, if we're not careful, we don't just lose freedom of speech around faith. We lose freedom of speech around creativity and development of culture and, and exploration of things that as you said earlier, with Wilbors, might change the very fabric of society. That's right. And I think a lot of Christians kind of struggle with this concept because they would look at some, maybe Ricky Gervais and a lot of Christians do find him very offensive and say, well, I don't want to kind of support uh, what and very offensive comedians are saying. So 
I maybe maybe I support cancel culture for some things, but not the gospel. And I understand that view. I do. I understand why some people don't feel comfortable in supporting free speech for everyone. And um, we had a case, uh, or we supported uh, a case very recently with a man called Harry Miller who had got into trouble because he had tweeted. Um, some jokes um, about gender ideology. Um, and some people have, some of my close friends have looked at these jokes and be like, I don't think that's funny. I think that he should have been cancelled and gone to trouble with the police. But the thing is about free speech is that it's got to be free speech for everybody. If it's free speech for only some that we agree with, then it actually doesn't work out. We don't get to benefit from being able to share ideas. People who um, hear the gospel, for example, aren't going to be able to, if we don't allow for people to challenge what we're saying, um, then that's not going to be a, a real conversation. And mm -hmm. likewise, if we limit free speech for people that we disagree with, we're not going to be able to have real conversations with them. So I think um, with these um, types of scenarios, we have to realize that um, with the answer to bad speech is not no speech, it's more speech. Uh, we've got to be able to, if we find things offensive and rude, we've got to be able to discuss why and challenge that person's thinking and say, well, would you not actually rather have it this way? And that's the way that we actually move forward together in society is through discussion and open debate, mm -hmm. even criticism, even rowdy criticism. Um, but it's not by just simply saying you can't say that. That's never going to work. And in fact, it would push things that we don't like underground. And we know from history that's how things fester. Yes. Um, so I think, yeah. So what is the future? Because I think many people do kind of feel as though the UK and maybe the Western world, because it's not just a UK phenomenon, this, I mean, it affects Europe, it's affecting um, the Americas as well. The, the feeling that we are at a crossroads here that could actually redefine centuries of development as to what it means to be a free, open, civilized society. Is that too strong? No, I do. I think that we were at a crossroads as well. I think that's both politically and culturally. Politically, it's very interesting because this government, that we, the Conservative government's manifesto said that they had a commitment to free speech. Uh, but some of the uh, legislation that they've been pushing through, as I've mentioned, would be very limiting of free speech. So that kind of shows that we're at a crossroads of that we believe kind of somewhere in the back of our minds that everyone has this right to open conversation and to hear ideas and to discuss them. But in practice, we're moving towards a position where we don't really allow that to happen with law. So the UK is really looking at, I mean, I think Brexit has provided this opportunity as well to look at like, do we kind of follow Europe in the way that it's tackling this idea, or do we carve our own path? If we look to what's happening in Europe right now, when we think of Pavy Raisinen's case, and she was, um, you know, she's being prosecuted simply for her, uh, for voicing her Christian view. And some of the, the uh, policies that are being debated in the European Parliament right now would, would see that proliferate across all the EU countries as well. So it would be considered a Euro crime. Uh, to have hate speech. And that's kind of the way that they're taking it. They're saying, we want to protect our citizens from the possibility of being offended so much that we're going to stop people being allowed to speak about what they believe. So they've really committed to that vision of kind of protecting from offence and therefore limiting the right to hear ideas and the right to speak about <laughs> yes, because I couldn't possibly cope with with hearing something that might offend me. I'm such a, a fragile, gentle little creature that I need my government to protect me from these things. I mean, when you when you stop and think about it, it's a ridiculous notion. 
It is, yeah. And it's, it's patronizing, I think. I mean, like just to quickly name an example of what you're saying, that the Northern Irish government this week that we're recording on, they have just passed legislation will stop uh, pregnant women from being able to hear in certain spaces about pro-life um, initiatives, about pro-life um, offers of help that they might benefit from. So the government has made a decision on the behalf of Northern Irish women that they don't want to hear uh, about a certain uh, ideology or about a certain offer. So that's very patronizing to mm. me, both as a woman and as a citizen, that the government can decide what I can hear and what I can make my own mind up about. Um, so that's kind of the European trend at the moment. The US are a little different. They have um, a First Amendment uh, right very famously um, that protects them from being able to say what they think. And that's kind of made them a little bit more protected in being able to, to hover over free speech legally, although culturally they're having a lot of the same issues that we're facing. Um, so the, the UK government actually at the moment are considering um, what their human rights approach is going to be. They've got an opportunity to redraft their human rights legislation uh, post-Brexit. Um, and this is kind of an opportunity where they have to make up their minds of what do we think we want to be a government that, that limits conversation, just in case we don't want anyone to be offended ever. <laughs> So we have to limit the conversations that our citizens can have to the extent that that could come all the way back to kind of even at Scotland right now, the recent legislation limit even conversations that you have with your family around a dinner table in case the kids hear something, in case someone's offended at some point. So the government has to make a decision about is it we want to protect from offence or we want to protect the right to have real conversations. Mm -hmm. And my view is that as Christians, we have to protect conversations because that's part of our great commission is to be able to share the truth of the gospel and to have really important uh, conversations about, with people about the true things in life the things that are good true and beautiful um so i think that christians have really got to have a, a good stake in this conversation at the moment and what can we do then to carry that stake forward i think there's there's three key things you can i think it's important to keep preaching the truth uh, I think at the moment, you, you have to know that you have a right to do so. We have freedom of speech embedded as a human right. And um, we have a right to hear. And it has the right to hear about the gospel as well. So just because our culture can seem to be moving in this cancel culture direction, and it can be scary uh, in case someone set, turns to us and says, you can't say that, you can. <laughs> and you must read the truth of the gospel. It's vitally important. And we must not um, censor ourselves um, about these good things um, two, you can make sure that you are aware of your rights to be able to do so. That's really mm. helpful uh, for many people to feel confident about what they're saying and, and how they're uh, expressing themselves. Be confident of, of your rights. And you can uh, learn a little bit more about these things on our website as well, adf.uk. And you can participate. You, when there's bills going through that limit uh, the rights of evangelists or Christians to share their faith, like the policing bill that I mentioned, you have uh, an MP who represents you, um, and it's a really good thing to be aware of these things, watching and writing to your MP and expressing your opinion so that they have to take that into account when they go to a voting chamber. Um, so keep up to date with these things. You can um, do so by getting uh, onto the newsletter of ADS.UK. You can find all about that on our website. So you'll know what's happening. You can be informed. You can participate um, with your MP as well. So um, check out our website for that, and we'd love to, to support you in doing so. And that website is adf.uk, as simple as that, adf.uk. 
I remember hearing Peter Tatchell, who is a gay rights activist and not always the most fervent supporter of Christian perspectives, I remember him saying about street preachers, I may be deeply offended by what you say, but I will defend your right to say it. It's not a unique quote, that, to him, because lots of people have said it over the years. The trouble is, there is a natural tendency, isn't there, to want to cancel ideas that we don't agree with, to want to push them away, to want to to protect our children from having to hear them and deal with them and think them through. But... If we cancel ideas from society, if we try to wrap people up in cotton wool and protect them from the vagaries of life and protect their sensitivities from things which may upset their tender ears, what do we do? We create a society that lacks a robust ability to stand up for what it believes. We create a society that lacks a robust ability to engage with different opinion and determine where the truth lies in the conversation. We create a society that actually becomes divided, where nations become separated from nations because culture disagrees, and families from families and individuals from individuals. Cancel culture is not just about J.K. Rowling struggling to get on the anniversary programme about Harry Potter. It's not just about comedians being told they can't say something. It's not even just about preachers being told that they can't proclaim biblical truth and can't proclaim verses from the Bible as truth. It's also about society losing the very heart that God intended for us, that we might draw together and build that which is good. From our point of view, for his glory. From society's point of view, so that it becomes a stable, civilised, perpetuating, growing, engaging place to live. Cancel culture isn't just a bit of nonsense. Cancel culture is a natural temptation. And we all have to decide to take a stand that we will hear what others are saying and continue those conversations. Lois McClatchy is from ADF UK. ADF.UK is the website. Lois, thank you for joining us this week for Life Issues. Thank you very much. I'm Paul Hammond. Why not join me next week for another life issue? Ta-da!